Round. Welcome to the Fellowship Regional Church Podcast. Thanksgiving, the hearth of our home, our kitchen, becomes this bustling gathering place of clanging dishes, um, knives on cutting boards, people bumping into one another, and and, and it turns into just kind of this, this crazy chaos that just surrounds the whole holiday. Complete with cranberry sauce, cathead biscuits, gravy, mashed potatoes, lumpy or not, your preference. It's a wonderful, wonderful time. And then there's the good portion, the main event, the big dish, the bird, right? Now, you may not do that. My mom typically has some crazy idea for Thanksgiving. We should do a crawfish, like a boil. That's what we should do for Thanksgiving. Should we? Should we? Is that what the pilgrims would have wanted? I don't think so, mom. You need to re- rethink this. But this is historically, commonly, what we do. Even though the bird is the main course, oftentimes it is the main dish that we ruin fastest. Right? I just did a little research this week just because I was curious. Every single year, deep frying turkeys results in nine deaths 900 homes burnt to the ground and 15 million dollars worth of property damage according to the what is it the National Fire Protection Association every single year happy thanksgiving sorry about your house you know that's it how is that now if you if you want to take this a little further I mean, if my mind, you're kind of getting a picture of what, of what it works inside my head. Now, you, are you curious? Like, I'm curious. Like, who burns more turkeys in, in the United States? Like, who, who's in charge of that? If you wanted to know, it's Texas. Texas is winning. <laughs> Texas is winning. Illinois is second. Pennsylvania and Ohio tied for third. New York comes in fourth. And I uh, can't, remember, can't remember who's fifth. Um, So if you're planning on relocating, maybe think Texas and anybody to the east of us, they're not really good with that oil displacement thing. You know, they're not good with that. Which, if I can take this just a little step further, uh, according to uh, U.S. News and World Report, all of those states that I just mentioned rank lower than us as far as quality of school system. So you might want to rethink your plans, you know. And they might want to add some of that to the curriculum, you know. Like maybe a home ec class, they should consider that. Anyway, my main point is, why do we burn the main dish? Like that's the most, if you served Thanksgiving and and you just didn't have a turkey and you didn't have a ham, you didn't have something that moved to the center, if you didn't have that, somebody would say, the cranberry sauce, great, whoever eats that. And then, and then, is there more? Is there 
The potatoes are great, but is there, is there meat? What will, I, what will I slather in the gravy if I don't have a meat? It, it, would, it, would, it would be strange. It's the main portion, yet somehow we ruin it more than we ruin everything else. Why is that? Well, it could be that your oven has, you know, hot spots or, you know, uneven cooking, bad preparation. Maybe your dishes are, are below, below, you know, standard. I mean, they, they should be better. I, I, don't, I don't really, maybe you don't know about oil displacement and turkeys and oil and how you dip them and it's not fast. You know, those things, maybe you should, maybe that's it. But you know what the main reason is? Distraction. Just distraction. You hear it beeping, right? Yeah, I'll get to it in a minute. But if I let off this meringue, it's not going to set right. This is that, right? Because the salad will look better with halved cherry tomatoes, so will burn the bird. Distraction and, and, and bad priorities. How does that happen? You see, when it comes to Thanksgiving, I spend very little time in the kitchen. But when it comes to the spiritual life, I can tell you this. Oftentimes, distraction and poor priorities are the reason that I neglect the good portion. Our story today comes out of Luke chapter 10. It's the end of chapter 10. And this is another one of those iconic stories written by the gospel writer Luke and if you do not already know this story, then it, will, it, is, it is about to burn its image into your mind. And if you do know this story, then you already have it playing in your head. Let's go ahead and read this. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work myself? Tell her to help. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better. And it will not be taken away from her. Just quick application coming off of the first verse quick application and we'll leave it and, we'll, and, we'll, and we'll, we'll move on open your home to other people if you want to experience the presence of God if you want to experience the presence of God open your home to other people invite people in to your home share a meal well I don't like to our house is small okay I'm sure it'll be okay well, I don't like to our house is dirty okay clean it Well, I would like to, but, you know, we don't have a lot of groceries in there. Tell them to bring something. This isn't hard. Open your home to other people if you want to experience the presence of God. There are some amazing things that happen when you open your home and you share a meal with somebody else. Amazing things happen. Martha experienced the presence of Jesus in her home. But does she take advantage of it? Let me read you a couple other passages of Scripture just to drive home this point about hospitality. The, gospel, or the, uh, the writer uh, of Romans, Paul, 
He's talking about how we need to live as Christians and this, this very kind of high standard of living and all these kind of meticulous things that are, that are kind of difficult for a disciple to learn. Here's what he writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 9 through 13. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Love what is good or cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And then verse 13. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. But see, that's from our side looking towards heaven. How can I please God? We learned last week, love your neighbor. How do I inherit eternal life? Love your neighbor. But what does it look like from heaven's side? Okay, Hebrews 13, 1 and 2 is this. Keep on loving one another as, as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by doing so, some have shown hospitality to angels without even knowing it. You see, from heaven's side, it's, come, it's something completely different. Something mysterious. But does Martha take this step to appreciate the fact that Jesus is in her presence? Since the day sin entered the earth, the cohesive family unit that we begin to understand as our immediate family has been falling apart, and it will continue to do so. Fathers leave, mothers leave. It's, it's a mess. But you see, God, in all of his faithfulness, has provided us with another type of family. Something where, a family where diversity, diversity is embraced. Where forgiveness reigns. Where this isn't just tolerate, accept the behavior of somebody else. It's love them through their ridiculousness. That way there is nobody who is left behind and nobody who is without family. This is called the community of believers. This is the saints. And, and I hate to use the word because we've, we've screwed it up so bad, but it's supposed to be what the church is. What it's supposed to be. The church. It's where we love one another through this. And people stand on the outside and say, Where did you get family? This person, they're not my family. I mean, they're my family. But this is better than family. This is something better. Martha doesn't live alone. She lives with her sister Mary. And it's, if you've ever lived with some sibling of yours, then you understand the complications of this already, right? doesn't take long to figure out. There's roles, there's responsibilities. There's things that you do and there's things that I do. Things I handle, things you handle. You know good and well you're supposed to wash the dishes, I take care of the laundry. If the dishes don't get done and I still do the laundry, I'm hacked. Why? Because this is the way it's supposed to work. But see, here's the problem. Ever since Jesus showed up, Mary is now under the feet of Jesus. The, the word that Luke uses right here, setting at the feet of Jesus, is used one time in the New Testament. And it can only be defined as the arrival of a new puppy. Have you ever got a new puppy? And it's at your house, and you walk outside, feed it. And where does it go? Wherever your foot goes. It is underneath your feet. 
You were, you, were, you were hurtling and straddling and trying to keep from smashing the poor chap because he cannot stand to be away from you. Mary is that. Sitting at the feet of Jesus. Wherever Jesus goes, Mary is going too. She wants to be wherever Jesus is going. I'll be, okay, where, okay can I sit in front? I want to sit in front. I'm the line leader. Mary wants to be in front. She wants to sit in front of Jesus at his feet. While Martha, on the other hand, is doing what the contract said. The contract states, I take care of the cooking. She takes care of setting the table, clearing dishes. This is what is supposed to happen. And Luke is a genius writer because you can almost hear Martha's passive-aggressive sighs as she's bursting through the saloon doors on the kitchen. Can you see her? death stares into the living room where she's sitting in front of Jesus. <sighs> I'll get it. <sighs> and Luke writes this picture. It is just, it's absolutely, it's, just, it's so clear. But it doesn't stop Mary. It doesn't stop her at all. Mary is at the feet of Jesus. Now, this is meant to stand in stark contrast to this description of, and Martha was distracted by all the preparations that needed to be made. And so what Luke has done is he said, here's Martha. Does she look busy? She is. Don't bother her. And then here's Mary. What's she doing? Shh, she's listening. Don't bother her. And Luke has already set the stage, and you see them both. Martha's huffing and puffing, clinging casserole lids on top of the dish doing that, that passive-aggressive noise-making, hoping to just kind of draw a little bit of attention, maybe get some, uh, hello, I'm doing the work here. Some of you really get Martha, don't you? <laughs> you get her, don't you? And if you get Martha, you know what else you get? Promotions and more responsibility, right? It's exactly what you get. More accommodations and plaques for the wall. That's what else you'll get if you get Martha. Why? Because I know how to work. See, because here's the crazy thing. If you are on Martha's side right here, it's easy to look in, and there's really only one word that describes Mary and people who are like Mary. Lazy. And in your nicer moments, maybe clueless and unobservant, but simply put, lazy. The Mary types are lazy. Oh, do you need time to self-reflect? Grow up! Get busy. There's things that need to be done. Mary and Martha. She is duty-driven, task-oriented. She knows how to get the job done. And if you were like Martha, then, then there's, there's something that kind of happens in your mind, isn't there? To where you look around at the work that needs to be done, and immediately you begin to think to yourself, how does nobody else see this? Right? How did you just walk by the trash that's on the... You just walked by, you didn't even see it on the floor. It was on the floor by the trash can, and you didn't see it. How did you not see it? Pick it up. This is what you do. You're supposed to do it. And you will split your home in half over that, right? Why? Because it's on the checklist, so pick it up. That's the contract. I'm not like that. I don't know if you noticed, but I'm not like that. I'm married to that. <laughs> I married Martha. 
she's not one to go poking her nose in business that isn't hers. If, if you walk around here with the look on your face of like, oh, I wish someone would talk to me, she won't. <laughs> you need to schedule it and then she will. But until then, no. There's absolutely, it's not happening. She's fully equipped for every task that comes down the, the, the lane. She's got a calendar in one hand and she's got a calendar in the other hand. This is the way it works. This is how she's wired. I, on the other hand, I get a bit meditative and self-reflective at times. Weeks at times. <laughs> to the point that I can get so engulfed in conversation about motives and feelings and our past and how they all correspond to how we worship or even see God. I will get lost in the conversation. I will forget to ask my wife. I will forget to eat. I will forget to sleep. That's how I'm wired. Sometimes I forget I have a family. I'll forget to go home because that's what I like. That's the way I'm wired. And see, that's the way some of you are wired. But then there's others of us who are wired like Martha. It's busy. It's checklist. It's servitude. It's get the job done. What is your problem? Get on board. And it's neat, isn't it? And see, here's what's really cool is that God made you that way like he made me this way. He made me this way. I don't know why that stuff, and I don't know why, and this is the truth. I don't know why when there are situations, marriage counseling situations, and they walk in, and it's an absolute disaster, a part of my heart is leaping inside. Like, this is going to be fun. This is going to be so much fun. I don't know why, but I'm so anxious to get inside, to understand, to learn. My wife, on the other hand, like, I need some help this evening. She's like, it's not counseling, is it? Because I'm not interested. Like it is, and I need help. Okay, but I'm not saying a lot. I don't have a lot to say. Plus, I got to be done by about 8.30. We got some stuff going on. Okay, it's good. It's fine. It's great. Because we are just wired differently. Is there something wrong? Am I more right because I'm more like Mary, and you're more wrong because you're more like Martha? No. It's not the case at all. The problem is this. Is that when I forget to eat and when I forget to go home, when I forget to pay attention to myself, when I forget to be healthy, when I forget to spend time with the people who I need to spend time with so that I'm, I'm okay, so I'm refreshed. I've taken my natural wiring and I've moved it into overdrive. Same with the Martha types. Martha types who everything is so rigid and in line and scheduled, and it has to be this way. If you put that into overdrive, it becomes a problem. Just, just, just for your own records, um, Mary, Mary goes, I mean, Martha goes to Jesus. And she, do you not care? Now, listen, there's some people you can say, do you not care? Like, you could say that to your teenager, you know? Do you not care? Do you not care? You don't care about your room? Pick it up. Do you not care about this? Pick it up. There's some places you can say, you could probably say it, get away with saying it to your spouse. Hey, do you not care about my feelings, you know? To which my wife typically says, most of the time, no. No, she doesn't, she doesn't. Do you not care? There are some places you can ask that question. Do you know who you cannot and should never ask that question to? The Lord Jesus. Jesus, do you not care? Do I not care? Do you remember where Jesus is headed? Starting in the, in the middle of chapter 9, do you remember where he's headed? Jerusalem. And for what reason? Because that is the geographical location of our salvation. 
He's trying to get to the cross so that he can save the world. And Martha is upset with Mary because she won't set the table. And she wants to know, do you not care? I, just for your own record, I put together a list, a list of five. How do you know when you're Mary and Martha's out of balance? How do you know? Put together a list of five if you're keeping notes. Number one, you will have a very judgmental attitude towards other people. If they would only pay attention, they would only work harder, if they would only save more, and if they quit being lazy, the world would be fine. Judgmental attitude. Number two, there's an elitist mentality concerning your perspective. Well, I mean, if everybody just acted like I acted and did what I did, lived how I lived, handled things how I handled things, the world would be a whole lot better place. Some of you feel that way, don't you? Like, well, I mean, I'm not saying, but it's like I was having a conversation with a friend of mine. I won't tell you who it is. And I said, you know, you're, you kind of you favor your own opinion a lot. He's like, I favor other people's opinion that agrees with mine. <laughs> He's right. He's 100% right. You know, it's honest. It's honest. It's true. Elitist mentality concerning your perspective. Number three, relationships often suffer because of your rigidity. Your relationships suffer because this is the way it's supposed to go. Don't change your plans. Don't break the pattern. It must continue this way. No surprise, no spontaneity. Just for the record, if you were married to somebody who was like me and you were like this, we die on the vine. We die. Oh, is that a vineyard? No, it's raisins. That's us. Like choked out like, because there has got to be some rhythm to life. There's got to be some rhythm to life. Number four, the calendar, the clock, and the cash decide everything. If it's on the calendar, good. If we can make it in time, good. And if we got the cash, no, that's it. We can do it, that's it, no. These are the things that there's got to be some breath. There's got to be, just like with swimming. So you'll take a breath and you'll go under and you'll swim and you'll come up and you'll get a breath and then you'll go under and you'll swim and then you'll come up and you'll get a breath. There is no just holding your, holding your breath and staying underwater forever. And the other's called doggy paddling and that's weird too, okay? That's weird too. For, uh, number five, conversations with other people and prayers to God often, often refer to how somebody else needs to change instead of how we need change. Dear God, please be with my wife because she's insane. Right? Oh, please be with my husband. He's such a weak leader. Ouch. If our prayers and our conversations with other people are revolve, always involve how somebody else is failing in our life, we might have our Mary and our Martha out of balance. We might be out of balance. While some of us are inclined to be a little more rigid, kind of like an anchor, you know? Some of us are more inclined to be a kite, which the two do go well together, you, you, you have to admit. An anchor and a kite. Without the one, you know, no reaching 
There's nothing new. There's no new perspective. There's no gaining new heights and looking over the edge, running up to the ledge and looking over. There's none of that. It's just I'll be down here at the bottom if you need me. Without the anchor, though, people like me tend to float off, get lost in it all. And see, while we are very good at saying, well, it should be more my way or it should be more your way, the truth of the matter is this. If any part of my life gets out of balance and my Mary and my Martha get out of balance and I become too flighty or you become too rigid, and the same thing is true for both of us because all of us could use a little more time at the feet of Jesus no matter what. We could all use a little more time at the feet of Jesus. Verse 41 and 42 shows exactly how tender Jesus deals with Martha in all of this. Now, if I'm Jesus and she comes in and she tries to square me off, which by the way, the word that when she comes in and she stands over Jesus, the Greek word that's used, it is a very imposing, one of the words is assault. Nearly assaults Jesus about the forks go on the left and the spoons go on the right or whatever the conversation is. Tell her to go help me over the top of Jesus. If I'm Jesus, me and Martha, she's getting blown back through those saloon doors right away. You know what I mean? This is not how. You better check yourself, Martha, barking at me. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't. Jesus handles her with pure tenderness. Verse 41 and 42. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better. And it will not be taken away from her. You could hear the tenderness. Martha, 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 Martha. When you first read it, you kind of think to yourself, oh, that's tender. Martha, Martha. You know what I think it is, though? Have you ever seen a baby start crying so much they almost hyperventilate? You can't get a word in. It's just constant screaming. You're like, baby, baby, baby. Hey, shh, shh, I think this is kind of like Martha. Ma Ma hey, Ma Ma Mar Martha. 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 It's good. It's, you're wound up. It's okay. Listen to what it says. Martha, Martha, the Lord, you are worried and upset. There's two things I want to point out here. You are worried and upset. Number one, he does not criticize Martha for the way she is naturally wired. Okay, so listen. If you are a calendar Nazi, and I mean that in, in a very nice way. I don't mean it in a bad way just through my lens. If you are a calendar Nazi, okay, Jesus made you this way. This is, a, this is a wonderful thing. This is a wonderful thing. He does not criticize Martha because of her natural wiring. He criticizes the fact that it has shifted, it has shifted into overdrive. It has moved so far to the front that now that is the most important thing. The first word he uses when Luke writes this or when Jesus, what Jesus says is worried. Do you know what this word means? This is so cool. I kind of got to think for words. Here's what this, words mean. this word means. Not effectively distributing concerns. Now think this through. When you worry about something, you are not effectively distributing your concerns. There are times in life that there will be trouble. Jesus promised us that in this world we will have trouble. There will be things that will come in and there is an expectation for you to have some cause for concern. 
But not everything deserves the level of concern that we always offer it, correct? Some situation comes down to setting the table isn't quite like, you know, you know being, being in trouble with the law. This isn't the same kind of thing. This isn't the same as a bad diagnosis. It's not the same. Effectively distributing our concern, meaning that we could do something to change some of this. Not everything deserves a level 10, right? That idiot blew a stop sign. <laughs> Lose your mind. No. Not the case at all. The next word he uses is this. Upset. You are worried and you are upset. This word is especially, especially insightful. And here's why. It's used five times in the New Testament. Three times it is in reference to a child that has died and people are mourning. Three times. The fourth time it's used, it is with an angry mob bent on murder. The fifth time it's used is when Mary doesn't set the table. Do you see it like I see it? Like maybe we kind of overblew that situation. You know? Because it's not the same as an infant funeral or an angry mob bent on murder like someone's not helping in the kitchen. You are worried and upset, overreacting. This doesn't work. This doesn't work. Do you know that he loves you? Do you know that he loves you? Listen, your relationships will not always be perfect. Not in your marriage relationship, your relationship with your mom and dad, your friends. They will not always be perfect. Your children will not always be perfect. Finances will not always be perfect. The boss will not always be perfect. The situations of our life will not always be perfect. But do you know that Jesus sees us as perfect? When you have taken your life and you have attached it to his and put your faith in him, he sees you as perfect. So who are we trying to impress with all of our overachieving? Who are we trying to get the recognition from with all of our useless efforts? What are we trying to get done? If we're busting up the people around us and we're, dis and we're disconnecting our relationship with God, are we really doing anything fruitful at all? Second thing I want to, I want to show you is this. Jesus explains to Martha that anxiety is a choice. Well, that's not what my therapist said. I know. It's not what my therapist said either. Well, some things I just can't help. I hear you. But some things you can. Some things you can. Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but Mary has chosen. 
what is right. Chosen. Our choice to please everyone will have, an, will have an effect on us. Our choice to make other people happy will eventually wear us out. Our choice to be recognized by our efforts will tax us emotionally and physically. Our choice to busy ourselves rather than to take time at the feet of Jesus will eventually cost us as well. It's our choice. Some things are a choice. There's a word in here I want to show you. It's, 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 it's just comedic, really. When he describes Martha and her worried and distracted and upset, there are these three word pictures that show up for the word distracted. Now, some of you will get a kick out of these. Some of you will find them way too familiar. The first word picture is this, overoccupied. Like your life is a clown car. You know what I'm talking about? A clown car? Overoccupied? There's not enough seat belts or time to get done the things that need to get done. There's a second word picture. To be driven about mentally. <coughs> to be driven about mentally. So check this out. If we're going to take the metaphor of a clown car even further, you're not even in the driver's seat of the clown car. How about that? You're just along for the ride, being driven about and the third one is this, to be dragged about. Let's take it one step further. You're not even in the clown car. It's just going. And you yell and you scream for help, but the paint, painted-faced morons driving this colorful cachet of crazy has got us so twisted up, you think to yourself, I'd probably be better off just doing this all myself. And it's true. This is when we know that our Mary and our Martha is out of balance. So let's return to the beginning. The original word that Jesus uses when Mary has chosen the good. In the original Greek it says Mary has chosen the good portion. She's chosen the main dish. And that is to sit at my feet and to listen. Life is a feast. It's busy, chaotic. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of egg timers going off. There's knives on cutting boards. There's somebody saying, hey, could you keep an eye on that for me for just a second while I pour this? And somebody else telling you, oh, could you, could you check on this for me? Hey, do you mind getting the drinks ready? And all of a sudden, life is this feast. It's this gigantic, chaotic feast. You see, there's a good portion that has to keep on the forefronts of our mind. And that is our time with Christ. You see, when we trade in knowing Jesus for serving Jesus, we've messed it up. You see, if Jesus were to say to us, this is what I want from you, his first thing would be, I want you to know me. I want you to know me. And then after that, You'll know how to serve me. But without the first, the second is absolutely useless. 
absolutely useless. Earlier this week, I was mowing the grass, and I see this snake crawl through the grass, and it's one of those northern water snakes. It's not poisonous, but they're aggressive, and they're irritating, and, and I hate them. Um, and so it's trying to, trying to get back to the creek, and I'm between it and the creek. And so I holler for my dogs who tend to kill snakes pretty good, but they're not showing up quick enough, and so I kick this snake, and I kick it over there, and I find a log, and I take care of this snake. I've got a young dog, and the young dog shows up down at the creek finally. So I start sicking it on the snake. Go get it. For about, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, my dog circled this dead snake, nipping at it and then running away, nipping at it and then running away. Absolutely terrified, nipping, running away. Grab it by the tail, flick it, and it would come back to it. And it was like panic and run away. And I, for, for a minute, it was funny. But then after a little while, I was like, my dog's dumb. <laughs> because it's fighting something that's already dead. And then I saw the parable. That's Jared. That's Jared. My guess is it's probably you too. When you know good and well that Christ has gone to the cross and he has killed the sin that is in our world and in our life and in our heart and that we are dead to it, yet still we fight it. We fight it like it's alive, like it can take us, like it's poisonous, like it has big teeth and like its mouth is open. And we feel like we fight it all the time. Listen, can I tell you something? It's already dead. It's dead. You're already above it. You're already above it. You don't have to fight that fight anymore. It's already gone. He fought it for you 2,000 years ago on a cross. And it's been dead ever since. It's been dead ever since.